This is the Cajun Strong Style Podcast. 1037 The Game's exclusive pro wrestling podcast. Making his way to the podcasting ring. Hailing from the heart of Cajun country. It's me. It's me. It's the world famous CD. Let's ring the bell and get this party started off right. And welcome, everyone, to the latest edition of the Cajun Strong Style Podcast, the exclusive pro wrestling podcast for Acadiana's number one sports station. Appreciate you listening in, however you're doing so, be it through 1037thegame.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. However you get your podcast in, this is the perfect time to just sit back, relax, and listen to some great pro wrestling talk as we get closer to full gear this is being taped on Saturday. It was meant to be taped a few days ago, but, you know, things just kind of happen. And I'm kind of glad that I'm taping it today on all days because everybody might be trying to step away from all the talk about the election and the new president-elect and all that stuff. Guess what? I'm here to talk to you about the latest going on in the sport of professional wrestling, and let's get right to it right here, right now. And I want to talk about a few things. And I'm going to start off with Monday Night Raw. I absolutely was checked out on Monday Night Raw over the last few weeks. As you may have noticed, there hasn't been a Cajun Strong Style podcast. Missed out on a lot of different things in terms of taping, but we're going to try and get to a more consistent schedule starting this Monday. We'll get to that later. But I enjoyed what I saw from Monday Night Raw because this is the first time in a few weeks I watched it. I was like, okay, I'm all in on going ahead and starting to get back in the podcasting kind of zone. And I'm going to watch this on a Monday morning, on like a Tuesday morning. That way I get it in, I get it out. It's hot and nasty, and it's going to be really fun to watch. And the opening video for the show absolutely ruled. It fits so perfectly, and it speaks to the overarching story that I've been reading about surrounding the WWE title with The Fiend, The Miz, all zeroing in on Randy Orton, and as well as Drew McIntyre. A lot of different people are all gunning for Randy Orton, and I love the fact they're doing that. And then it goes to the opening segment after the intro, which I'm I'm okay with the new intro, with the new kind of like sound of yeah it's a little more like hip-hoppy but i i like it it's good i enjoyed legendary a little bit more then the opening segment happens and orton comes out for a promo mike wasn't on right away i think there was a little bit of like he was muted slightly and then they ramped him up maybe it was just a tech issue or whatever and then he mentions he's become a 14-time champion and now he calls himself the legend because he's taken out the best of the best and is simply put the best period and then Alexa Bliss comes out, and this is something, again, I haven't seen her completely go full into, like, the Harley Quinn to the Fiend's Joker, but I love the fact they have her with the little gloves that say play and pain. Really freaking awesome idea, I think. That was one of the coolest things ever. And it's just great to have that as part of the game. The Fiend's little, like, music plays, but he's nowhere to be seen. And then McIntyre just comes over and absolutely decks him with the Claymore kick. Very much like a brutal-looking one. I love the fact they did that. I love the way they did that spot. And then the Miz tries to cash in, but McIntyre runs interference, want to take the title from Orton himself in a solid open to the show because it establishes a lot of chaos and establishes a really overarching storyline with the fact that everybody now wants a piece of Randy Orton now that he has the title because if he's wrong to a lot of people and we'll talk about Bray Wyatt and what he how he's all involved in a little bit. Then we get to the first match of the night and it was okay. It was just it was whatever. I didn't have a whole lot to say in terms of like positive or negative about this. It was a guitar or a pole match. And it was Elias versus Jeff Hardy. 
and it's fine. It's a somewhat fun match, and Jeff Hardy wins after smashing him with the guitar. It looked like it hit him on his neck off of Brett's rope, and then it looked like it hurt. But honestly, it was a fine match. It felt like it was a little bit longer than it needed to, but still solid enough. Then the women's tag team title match comes up, and it was Dana Brooke and Mandy Rose, which is a great tag team, by the way. I love the fact they put the two blondes together, and the two like actually look like they could have like a good chemistry become like go from an odd couple to like true contenders, maybe even champions down the road. But they take on Nia Jackson, Shayna Baszler, and it's all about Lana. Of course, it's always going to be about Lana when it comes right down to it. The other blonde from the Raw roster. She runs in towards the end of the match and tries to cost Nia and Shayna the women's tag team titles, but the plan eventually backfires. And it was, again, it's not a bad match. It's just a match I did not care about. Again, I felt like there was just something about the fact you have the women's tag team titles and they just don't make me want to care when I'm watching this on a Tuesday morning. It's a great alternative to some of the election coverage, but again, I will gladly watch Monday Night Raw over some of the coverage of the election or anything related to kind of the news cycle. But that's just kind of how it goes. It was fine. Just nothing much stood out to it. And I'm really getting tired of the women's tag team titles because honestly, there's no real women's tag teams. Now you've got fire and desire broke up Bailey and Sasha. They're no longer together. Kyrie Sane's off in Japan. So there's just no heat to this division, no juice to it. And now you have to kind of piece things together with, obviously, Dana Brooke and Mandy Rose being a tag team. But is that enough to really warrant keeping this tag team division? I don't think so. Then we get a a really quick match. I think that was what much of the first hour was. It was promo, match, 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 like some like outside-the-ring promos. It was just like so much crap was going on, it was hard to keep track of. And then R-Truth, Bobby Lashley was a match that I completely missed happening because I left my room, went to use the bathroom, take care of my business, and I came back. The match was over. Blink and you miss it. Of course, Lashley wins with the hurt lock in about a minute. And the Drew Gulak beats, gets the hell beat out of him for good measure. And just really much, you know, that first hour was just like, oh, man, this is, like, it's, it's, it's slogging. And then things start to pick up a little bit more with AJ Styles coming out for a promo around the top of hour two. And he saying that he's the captain of the Raw team at Survivor Series. They're doing this again. But this time it's just Raw and SmackDown, not Raw, SmackDown, and NXT, which would have been a lot more interesting. Then we get to see, you know, Braun come out and try to resolve the segment. Resolve the argument between Keith Lee, Sheamus, and AJ Styles. And Lee wound up making me realize why he hasn't gotten over as much as I'd like. And it's him using the who the blue hell are you and using that kind of like that fancy scholarly voice that he uses. I get it. You know, that might be just how he talks in real life. But, man, it absolutely kills the gimmick of Keith Lee just being an absolute badass the way that he it's just the way he talks. If he just talked like himself and didn't have that sing songy like like acting like he's much more intelligent, if he just trash talked without that. I think this would be perfect. I think he'd have a great gimmick. His look has some work to do, but it just feels like they've hindered him so much since he's been on the main roster. It's saddening, to be honest with you. And then we get to that sets up a triple threat match that if Braun wins, he is on Team Raw for Survivor Series. And this is where the show starts to pick up. This is probably the match of the night for me. And that's like saying something, considering the fact that we got some really cool stuff throughout the night. 
But it was Braun Strowman, Sheamus, and Keith Lee. Three hosses, and it was a banger of a match. A lot of really cool, crazy crap happened. One such thing. Keith Lee, before an even bigger spot, it was like a lot of big spots throughout. And with the fact that these are all big guys was really damn cool. So we get to Keith Lee. He does a dive that almost saw him hit, like, it hit his back on his on the apron, but literally he almost hit his neck, and it cut to AJ in his face. And again, I hate Kevin Dunn's production, but that was an occasional moment where cutting away was perfect because what it created a meme, and number two, I think it created a moment that everybody's like, oh my god, that actually happened. It was amazing. I thought that ruled. And then Braun basically spears Sheamus and Keith Lee, because Sheamus has him set up for a move. I think it was White Noise. And he, or I can't remember, the High Cross, I guess. I think he has a lot of different names for different moves. I can't quite remember them all. But Braun destroyed both of them, sending them through the barricade. And the way it happened was like, boom! And it was so damn good. And it went to break on that note. It felt like they went a little bit earlier. It was basically, the, as soon as you're, oh my god! Like, immediately cut to break. I wish he had spent more time to set up, like, hey, this is going on. Oh my god! Alright, we're gonna take a quick break. We're trying to figure things out. Like, it was just very much, like, way too quick for my book. Maybe that was just an itchy trigger finger? I don't know. And the, the finish was even more, like, fast and furious. Lee was, Keith Lee was going for the spirit bomb. Sheamus hits a bro kick on Lee. And then Braun power slams Sheamus for the win. Again, it made sense with the fact that it was setting up an angle like that. So, yeah, that's more than okay. Good, great, grand, wonderful. And we move on from that. Then we get to the Firefly Funhouse segment. And, again, this is like the second hour was really when Monday Night Raw hit its, like, high points. Firefly Funhouse ruled. Callbacks to the Randy feud was fantastic. The fact that you actually are calling back to it really speaks to the continuity of the character, the Fiend, basically righting all the wrongs from guys that basically wronged him in the past. John Cena, a very key point. Braun Strowman, even to a certain extent, Roman Reigns, Seth Rollins. All these guys that have wronged the Fiend or Bray Wyatt are now getting like the work from the Fiend. I love the fact they're doing that. It fits so well, and this one is the next big thing. Hopefully, we get a cinematic match with these two down the road, but I'm not necessarily banking on it being at like I'm a TLC. I think that could be more of a Royal Rumble thing. But I also loved some of the funnier bits. The swear jar was absolutely hysterical, and I loved it. And then they had the ending with the tongue was pretty wild, and it really spoke to me that I can't think of one truly Bad Firefly Funhouse segment. If I watched them all like back to back to back to back to back to back to back, I could probably find a few that just like don't hit the mark nearly as well. But there's not one truly like bad segment that ruined the entire gimmick. And then we get a Nia Jax versus Alana match. And again, this is kind of like a come down right before we get to hour three. It's a transition. And it was very much a short, sweet, to the point match. Nia Jax gets the win, puts Lana through the table for the seventh week in a row, and we do that. And, again, not really much to write home about. It was very much a quick match. In fact, in my notes, I put eat, sleep, a lot of put through table, repeat. Because that's basically what it's been for almost two months straight with no real resolution to it, with no real conflict resolution. Now, Lana just looks like a dope. Then it opened on its hour number three with the VIP lounge. MVP hypes up the champion versus champion match between Sami Zayn and Lashley. 
And then the New Day comes out to make this a promo battle between Kofi and Xavier and the Hurt Business. Sign me the hell up because this is going to be really cool. Like This is a great promo between the two. They're putting them over, putting Bob Lashley over. And then MVP starts dropping facts and mentions the fact that Kofi lost to Brock in like eight seconds and says Lashley could probably beat him in less. Just give us the match, damn it. And I don't know WWE just recently got rid of the Brock Lesnar trademark, but please, once we get fans back, just book Brock Lesnar versus Bobby Lashley so we can just get it over with and both of them can move on and do whatever the hell they want to do after. That's what, I, that's what I'm praying and hoping for that we get to see down the road. And then we get to Kofi with a really great joke, and it was almost like spot on in terms of like the timing. Kofi made a joke about Lashley only lasting eight seconds with Lana, which made me remember that angle that happened before COVID where they had the breakup angle, and apparently it was a cucking angle from what I was able to kind of infer from Miro and everything. We'll talk about them later. But it set up a tag match out the break, which I wish had more time, and I wish this would be a pay-per-view match. New Day versus Cedric Alexander and Shelton Benjamin. These four guys put together a really solid match that if really had more time, it's probably could have been one of my favorite matches of the week. And that's saying something, because there were some really good matches, especially with AEW Dynamite. We'll talk about that a little bit later, but really good. And then we get to a moment that I think many people have been just wondering why, the why of it all, is Ricochet versus Tucker. Remember, Tucker a couple weeks ago at Hell in a Cell basically ruined the push of Otis costing the money, the big contract. And now he loses in a minute to a relative jobber. He was part of a major angle a few weeks ago, but now is reduced to nothing. Then after the match, Mustafa Ali shows up before the bell rang. He shows up before the bell rang. Then after the match, retribution beat up Tucker and ricochet. And apparently Ali mentioned in a backstage promo that the group attacking Tucker was for Otis. Which brings me to conspiracy theory time. I'm going to try at least once a week to find something to do the conspiracy theory about. And in canon, Ali was a SmackDown hacker all along and he helped Mandy and Otis get together. Now he's supposedly the leader of Retribution. And, but all this going on with Mustafa Ali's motivation, his raison d'etre, could Otis be the real leader of the group? I'm going to pose that question. You can check it out on Twitter at Cajun Strong Style, C A J N Strong Style, because I can't put the full name of the podcast because Twitter has a character limit, is what it is. Then we get to the main event a high handicap match between Miz and Morrison versus Drew McIntyre. Really great main event that was just short of 19 minutes, to be honest, which you want to give them a little more time to New Day, New Day's tag team match a little bit earlier in the show. And also give a little bit more time to, I'd say, a match that definitely could have been better. Elias versus Jeff Hardy. If you could get it a few extra minutes and taking the guitar to pull Vince Russo gimmick away, probably would have been a lot better match. But it was a solid main event, and McIntyre wins with the Claymore, and that was followed by Orton hitting the RKO. And then the Fiends music played as things faded to black, causing a state of chaos. And it's something that I think WWE doesn't do enough of a job of, and I absolutely miss that part of wrestling. Like back in the day when you watched WCW Nitro with the oh we're out of time they like why hasn't that come back to this day I don't get it and it was overall a mediocre edition of Raw you had some really cool matches like the the, the triple threat and the main event were probably the only two matches that you're gonna want to come away remembering you're not gonna remember two weeks two three weeks from now the Tucker lost to Ricochet in a minute 
Now, it might just speak to how much they don't care about Tucker and probably don't care about Otis, but we'll kind of cross that bridge when we get to it. I haven't watched SmackDown in full. I'm not going to talk about it, but I will say this. From what I saw of the women's title match, it's a damn good match. Probably my match of the week. Unless something full gear blows me away. And speaking of full gear, today was today is the AEW full gear pay-per-view on BR Live and also available however you get your pay-per-views at. But it was the go-home show this past Wednesday, and the show opened with an interview with Inner Circle going right into a tag team match between MGF and Wardlow versus Ortiz and Sammy Guevara. Jericho mentions that MGF may be a little bit soft, starting to enjoy the way the show opens. This is something I wrote down in my notes, and it's just like, yeah, sometimes you have the formulaic show opening promo in WWE, or occasionally you'll have a quick match just to start the show off right. But it feels like it's called by numbers. This, lately, what they've been doing isn't necessarily the brand new style, but I like the fact that they do it where you have an angle and it bleeds into, you know, what's going to happen segment one, what's going to happen for the first quarter hour. It blends in to where you are going to wind up sticking around. It's not like, oh, hey, you're going to have a promo that lasts like four or five minutes from Cody Rhodes or the Young Bucks or whatever. You start with a quick interview. And then you go right into the next match, but it's but the the segment sets up the match, and then it shows them going to the ring. It fits really well overall in terms of how AEW's book things, and I love the idea of it. Then comes a tag team match, and it was probably the most entertaining opener I've seen on Dynamite ever. With some really cool spots, Sammy Guevara continuing to just be an absolute madman with some of the spots that he did. And then the Tower of Doom spot with Wardlow choke slamming both Ortiz and Guevara while MGF's on top. It's like, what the hell was going on? Absolutely nuts to butts. Jericho was great on commentary. There were some really other cool spots throughout. But the finish is Sammy Guevara winds up getting hit with a chair by Matt Hardy, who was wearing a Serpentico mask. So either Serpentico is Matt Hardy or David Arquette. And then MGF gets the win by putting Ortiz in the salt of the earth arm bar, and Ortiz like immediately taps out. And they're celebrating. MGF winds up attacking Jericho after the match. So, and again, it sells the fight between those two at full gear, where if MGF wins, he becomes a member of the inner circle. Really well done from him. Really well done. And then you had Kenny Omega's promo, which really was probably the standout moment of the night for me. The promos they did. Because... I'm a big fan of like setting up promos, be it like a like the way they do it with the sit down interviews. It's it's very old school because remember they used to do those back in WCW and JCP and all that. Because if you go watch back, they did a lot of those. They did a lot from like Ric Flair's home, for instance, and they did that with Kenny, and it worked really well because it establishes like what kind of characters they have become, and really brings home the whole oh Kenny is turning heel at this pay per view thing is finally going to be full heel. Because he's been heel before. Or he's shown the heel tendencies. He's never gone full into it. Or full gear, pun intended. But really cool. And I'm looking forward to seeing how this is going to go. He says he's destined to win the tournament. And win the title. Really loved how this works. It's again, a big strength to AEW for doing these long-term builds. That way you are completely invested into the story. Then we get to Trent versus Miro. And it's a very much kind of blase match, but there's a lot of stuff that I, I took away from it. 
And it started off Miro interrupting the ring introductions and talks a bunch of trash to Trent and mentions his mother, Sue, and all hell breaks loose. Basically, Trent becomes an absolute madman and wants to kill Miro. And at one point, you had Excalibur drop a Notice Me Senpai reference, and it threw me way the hell off. I immediately just put that down in my notes. Like, why did Excalibur say Notice Me Senpai in 2020? It was just really weird. And you just got to remember, this all started, this feud started with an arcade machine being broken. And it was called Alan, A-L-A-N. Like our guy, Alan Michael, who's not in the wrestling ring in the sky, if Cody's listening. There was a lot going on as the match progressed with Kip Sabian brawling with Chuck Taylor. Then we get to a spot during the picture-in-picture, which I missed until I saw it like on Reddit. Was Orange Cassidy taking Penelope Ford's glasses after his get knocked off by Penelope. And then the Dark Order runs into attack Cassie. Something I completely missed during the break, but I love the fact that he did it because it really hypes up the match in full gear. It's just got to be a way to book a show where you can have a like a commercial break, picture in picture, and make it mean something. Not just put a hashtag to where you can potentially get, win a meet and greet. I'm talking straight up like booking out a picture in picture segment to mean something. Well, let's say somebody gets a pin. And so I've always like complained about be it picture in picture, be it, you know, back when like second screen started to become a, a more usable phrase. I can remember the WWE app used to have like it during Ross commercial breaks. You make sure you go to the WWE app to see what happens live. You never know what's going to happen live. They only had like one time where something unexpected happened where the match actually ended and you were intentionally wanting to see what happened. I'm not saying every match needs to end during a commercial break, but let's say a match ends during a commercial break and you basically go up to go take a whiz or whatever because you're so inclined to just go ahead and take a break after seeing some really cool stuff happen prior, you are basically missing out on something. If you're just seeing dudes just wrestle for like two to three minutes, like normal, then you're missing something. This was a great step, but not the end game, I think, when it comes to picture in picture to where like you use it, that way you still can hook people in. Now, obviously, people are going to want to just go and get Fight TV and turn that on, and that's fine. But I think with TNT, they need to figure out a way to fully like pull this off and be able to make this work, because I think it's a good idea. And it was just a lot going on. It was a really fun match between these two. Hard-hitting as all get-out throughout. Miro was throwing Trent around like a ragdoll at certain points, and Miro wins with the game over. I wrote this down as the accolade because I couldn't remember what the actual name of the move is now. And then all hell breaks loose with Chuck Taylor trying to break up the hole because... You know, Miro won't let it go. And then Sabian gets after Chucky e. T, followed by more trash talk. And then Cassie stands tall after hitting the trust fall on both of them outside the ring. Then we get to the Adam Page promo, which was good. I just feel like the production value was subpar because during the interview, you heard a lot of audio issues. There's like echo throughout like early on. Things got fixed, but man, it, it was just rough. And then Page admits he's nervous heading into the final. JR mentions that he's looking forward to calling this match. Good promo. I still don't know how a year into TV, AEW still falters with the little things. I don't know the first thing about like a producing a full-blown TV show, but I would think you know making sure the audio levels and making sure this stuff works out well actually works. And then you have a promo coming out of the commercial break, hyping up the tag team title match between Young Bucks and FDR. Great selling in segments afterwards that if the Young Bucks lost, they would never challenge for the tag titles again. And then they had Team Taz come out starting to kind of state facts about what happens at full gear with these guys saying they'll be making an impact one way or another. So who knows how that's going to wind up changing 
the way maybe the main event goes or what have you. Then we get Young Bucks versus Private Party. These two can tear it up, and they've always put on like really good bangers. And this is another example of why they're really good. And this is actually made on the fly. It was largely made because Scorpio Sky was pulled due to coming in contact with someone who tested positive for COVID-19. According to Sky, he said that he has come back negative when it comes to the testing, but it was just out of an abundance of caution. We'll see what happens with SU from here. As Private Party comes out, Sammy Guevara gets a receipt. He gets a receipt on Matt Hardy from earlier. And these two, again, put on a banger of a match, and the Bucks win with the BT trigger. It's not really a whole lot to talk about, but the bigger story is what goes on with the Bucks. They're injured. Matt has his nagging back selling, and then Nick has the ankle injury. After the match, FTR put the boots to the Bucks and threatened to break Nick's ankle, but Omega and Paige break it up. And then we see a little bit of tensions flare up, but right between we go right before we go to break, Omega pushes, and then they go to commercial. It felt like a early cut, but I like the fact that they did it because it makes you wonder what's going to happen with these two at full gear now. And then we get possibly the best promo in AEW history, and this is no hyperbole. Eddie Kingston versus John Moxley face-to-face. There was no physicality clause added to the segment. If they fight the matches off, as expected. This is not the first time anybody's ever done this, but it worked extremely well with the fact that these two are just like outright hate each other. And it really shows like Kingston mentions that the AEW title is all that matters, and this is why he's never given his mom like never never helped make his mom a grandma or isn't married or whatever. It makes you want to root for him so much, and this kind of stuff just straight up rules. Another better respect for Eddie Kingston for putting together a phenomenal promo. Moxley responds by saying he made a promise to Kingston's mom that he would look after him. It's just an absolutely nuts promo that wants you to see them tear each other limb from limb. And this is exactly what you want to see heading into an I quit match. And Kingston basically keeps yelling, you're going to have to kill me to do that. And that alone just sets it off. And you know, oh, hey, I'm ready to watch this show all the way through to see this main event. And this is going to be your main event. And it was so special, it hyped me up even more. And this is a rivalry that I was just looking forward to. to I, I see it actually happening. Whenever they had the match on Dynamite that was kind of last second, I was amped. Because this is probably going to be the best opportunity we could see Eddie Kingston have a actually good-to-great match with another guy that's so used to death matches. That's why I'm really nervous but also looking forward to that match. And then we get to a Pac promo. <laughs> And it was amazing. I talk about editing issues. There was none here. It was absolutely fantastic with great editing. It really paints him as more of a psychopath than normal. At least from what I could tell, maybe he has a role in what happens at full gear and was aligned with Death Triangle before COVID hit. And now Death Triangle is with Lucha, is with Kingston, along with a lot of other guys, which I love. But it makes you wonder, is that going to be something to go look for in the not-too-distant future? Then we get to a a promo with Dustin Rhodes and QT Marshall, which sets up a sneak attack by Butcher and the Blade, who they're going to be facing next week. It was announced then. And then then the bunny, Allie, sets up a sneak attack. Just a quick throwaway segment is what it is. Then we get Nyla Rose versus Red Velvet. It's a glorified squash. It's a tune-up match, which I love the idea of doing this because it's a squash match with a meaning, and it has a point behind it. It's not just a squash match just for the sake of squash. And Rose dominates Velvet, gets the win with a running knee, 
And then you see a pull apart brawl between Rose and Sheeta. Really well done. Vicky Guerrero really knows how to still draw a great heel promo. So damn good. And then we get the promo hyping up Omega Page. This is literally the coolest thing ever. It's something I didn't expect, but I loved it. I'm sure a lot of people are mixed about it. But for me, as somebody who loves old school 80s hair metal, this was so freaking cool. Just the fact that Cinderella's Don't Know What You Got Till It's Gone, which was featured in The Wrestler, by the way, absolutely made me pop, like, huge. Because I'm a huge fan of, again, huge fan of old school 80s hair metal. And this was a prime example of why I love pro wrestling. Because you can make an angle like this just so weird. And then we find out later that it was all created by your boy. <laughs> I'm still laughing about this. It was all created because of South Park. I couldn't help but to pop at that. Apparently, Tony Khan is a huge South Park fan, and he got that from the episode when Stan and Wendy broke up, which is still a hilarious like thing that came out of all this. Again, absolutely loved it. It ruled. And then he announced a match for the buy-in is an NWA women's title match between new champ Serena Deeb and Allison Kay. And Kay had just recently announced that she was a free agent about 24 hours later gets her first booking for the buy-in and I cannot wait for that one because I think she definitely deserves a lot more love she's been an indie state mainstay for a good while just like somebody like Jessica Havoc who's now in Impact Wrestling and her run of Sienna in Impact Wrestling was solid as well she definitely deserves a lot more love and then we get to the main event of the night and it all sets up as Cody Rhodes and the Gun Club beating facing the Dark Order Coca Bana, John Silver Possibly the best part of Dark Order now, and ten. It's a pretty six, pretty standard six man tag. I, I really didn't. It was just a match. I didn't take a whole lot away from because by this point I'm already like, okay, you cannot beat. Don't know what you got till it's gone. And then they wind up doing it, but it's all about what happens after the match. And I'd never seen you know like Austin Gunn wrestle. I don't normally watch Dark because it's just like it just matches with little to no consequence in terms of the booking of the shows and the stories, but it was still good. Austin Gunn hits the quick draw, which is like almost like a hip toss in a vertical suplex that looked awesome just because it was like so crisp and smooth. After the match, Dark Order tries to get the group distracted so John Silver can hit him with a steel chair, but Cassidy takes the chair out of his hands and floored him with the orange punch. Sets up their match again, really hypes that up. I can't wait for that. That should be a ton of fun and probably a great opener to the card. Then Cody got a promo to end the show to sell how he put Darby on the map. It was a little heelish, but I loved it. And also kind of sort of called back to the match at Fighter Fest last year, saying that they consider Darby Allen a liability. So Cody put himself in a match with Darby to show that he is not a liability. Phenomenal call to be able to pull that off. I loved it. And that's how the show ended. It was a great show, and it lived up to the hype and hyping up what could be the greatest pay-per-view that the promotions had in like the last year and a half. The I Quit match, I think Moxley's going to retain. because As much as I love Kingston, I think he's not going to be a transitional champ because I think this is all setting up for Moxley, Omega, and Kenny finally getting that big win over somebody that he's been chasing for the last like year and a half since the company's started. <laughs> Then we get Cody versus Darby Allen. I'm conflicted here. I feel like Darby's going to win, but does he really need the belt? Also, if Cody loses, what's next for him since he can't technically challenge for the AEW title? It's not like 
Oh, yeah, after a year, he can challenge again. No, he cannot challenge forever. So that's why I've got Cody winning. I can't see him just continually trying to win back the TNT title. I just don't see it. I see him doing something more important. Then we get to FTR and the Young Bucks, the World Tag Team titles. i got to go with the Young Bucks winning it because I don't see them like never challenging for the tag team titles again. Because, again, what's the raison d'etre for them competing in AEW if they can't win the tag titles? Then we get to a women's world title match between Hikaru Shida and Nyla Rose. Thinks Shida needs to drop the title. And you put it back on the Native Beast, and she puts together a long program with her being dominant. Because Shida's been very much like, oh, yeah, she'll show up every few weeks and wrestle, but it's only for the title. It feels a little lame. I wish they had more time to build the character that is Nyla Rose and establish her as an absolute monster. Then we get to the tournament final between Omega and Paige. Kenny wins this, but I think the story is far from over. But it'll be more after Kenny wins the title. Because I think Hangman Page is going to have to undergo a massive character change to really uh, make himself the guy in AEW. Then we get Chris Jericho versus MJF. MJF wins. He joins the inner circle. I think MJF gets the win. I'm probably wrong with this, but there's going to be some BS like throughout, and it's going to be overbooked, and it'll probably be underwhelming compared to what we're expecting. Then we get to the lead deletion. Should be fun between Matt Hardy and Sammy Guevara. I think Matt wins. And then John Silver, Orange Cassidy. i got to go with Orange Cassidy winning, beating up the little kid. And then it's the buy-in pre-show, NWA women's title, Serena Deeb, Allison Kay. i got to go with Deeb retaining in a banger of a women's title match, but then we find out Kay has now signed with AEW, and maybe we get to see a match with her facing off against Nyla Rose down the road. I think that's the one big thing I'm wanting to see in all this is more of Nyla Rose being a women's champion because I think she definitely deserves the opportunity. It's just you need to have her win and be dominant. That way when the person who wins looks like an absolute monster, is like, oh, wait, I beat the Beast. Now let's establish myself as the true like ace of the women's division. It's something I've always just been questioning about how AEW books out shows and how they present different characters.